Hello, everyone, and welcome to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. So today, I'm actually joined here with Reverend Jeff Cran from Zion's Banner, and we're going to be talking about why uh, the Jewish people have really turned away from Jesus, why they don't accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, and hopefully, even with Jews who are listening to this podcast, you guys can get an understanding of why exactly we what Christians actually believe in and why we believe in what we believe in. So... This topic today we're going to be covering on this particular episode is going to be about the forbidden text known as Isaiah 53. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Jeff Cran. Welcome to the program. Great to be on and great to spend time with you again. Likewise, we actually had a lot of fun last time doing uh, the Muslims and talking about Islam and whatnot. So I've been in contact with you and so trying to figure stuff out, especially with work involved. So I know we we're talking a little earlier about it, but I remember watching on YouTube about how this Isaiah prophecy in Isaiah 53 is, well, banned. It's, it's not taught at all. Why is that? Well, there are, there's a, a historic reason, and then there's a very practical reason. Um, the historic reason was that the Jews try to read through the Bible once every year. And they have a reading schedule. So a portion of the Bible is read each week in the synagogue. It's called the Torah portion. Now, as history went on a little bit, uh, they linked a prophetic or portion out of the prophets to that Torah portion, uh, basically on the idea that there was a similar word or a similar topic or some sort of concept. They tried to link them together. Uh, and so... Yeah, I remember one story that the reason for that was that the Romans forbade the teaching of Torah, so they teach the Haftorah. But in the synagogue every week, you have a Torah portion read, then you have a Haftorah portion from the prophets, sometimes from the writings. Uh, and the problem is you can't get through the prophets in a year. So there used to be a three-year reading cycle. They dropped it to a one-year reading cycle. And uh, in doing that, they left out Isaiah 53. Now, that's the practical reason that you're going to get from a Jewish rabbi who's in the know. He might say, well, you know, that has to do with the triannual cycle. And that, uh, the practical reason is Isaiah 53 started getting used by Christians to witness to Jews uh, in the Middle Ages. Uh, and oh, so, wow. Don't ask, don't tell. Oh, if we so don't read it, you're not exposed to it, and we don't have questions to answer. Yeah, because when I read Isaiah 53 and I go through it, it's really about the suffering servant of the Messiah who, who is to come. And a lot of times when I read Isaiah 53, I've, I've worked with people who are Jews, and they've, you know, I just read straight up Isaiah 53 to them talking about who Jesus was. And the first thing they'll say is, well, we don't read the New your, your Bible. We don't read the the New Testament because that that's we don't believe in that. And I tell them, I'm not reading the New Testament. I am reading from your prophet Isaiah in the 53rd chapter. And they start, a lot of them can get rather aggressive towards it going, they can't be talking about, it's got to be talking about something different. I go, well, if you, when you read about it, it's talking about a man. It is so bluntly clear. So I'm like, is it the fact that when Isaiah 53 is read, that it's so easily connected to Jesus that there would be an issue with basically the Jewish belief system and connecting it into the messianic Messiah who Jesus is? 
Well, what you're describing is one of the reasons that Chosen People, which Zion's mm -hmm. banner, my ministry, is really a part of, um, did the Isaiah 53 campaign. Uh, and so I have materials that were designed to force Jewish people to actually look at the chapter uh, and consider it because they've never been exposed to it. Uh, the reason that you have the kickback is because uh, it became popular under Rashi to connect Isaiah 53 with corporate Israel. So How did that work? Well, that I'm going to be dealing Wednesday with answering Rabbi Singer, who proposes that very thing. Rabbi Singer's objections uh, to Isaiah 53, where he argues very clearly that given the context of Isaiah 53, uh, in the latter chapters, you know, the latter chapters, 40 chapters, like 45, you know, I mean, not exactly 45, but if you look at those, those chapters in the 40s, the end of the 40s, you have the beginning order called the servant songs. And when the servant songs start, they obviously are referring to corporate Israel. And so what Rabbi Singer does is he uses that and leverages that. But what he ignores is that in chapter 50 of Isaiah, where the term um, Oved or servant is, Eved or servant is used, uh, it can't refer to Israel. So you have corporate Israel, corporate Israel, and then 50, where it has to refer to an individual person who redeems Israel so Israel can fulfill her purpose. And then you have Isaiah 53. The term servant is not used between 50 and 53. Oh, wow. So it switches. So would this be an attempt to try to make Jesus not the Messiah? And this is an attempt to argue that Christians are using a form of exegesis that is improper, that they don't properly interpret the Bible. This is a Gentile church understanding foisted upon these poor Gentiles by the church fathers and by the church. And if they really read their Bible, they would understand that this couldn't possibly be what it means. Uh, Rabbi Tovia Singer, who's a polemicist, uh, calls this stuff, let's get biblical. Uh, it's let's get bad interpretation. Let's ignore Jewish sources is what he should call his stuff. So it sounds like he's really just trying to, like the like Mormonism, just really trying to butcher that living heck out of the verse and out of the, what is actually being said in order to fit a narrative that's not actually there in order for him to, as I said, further that narrative that Jesus he is He wants not to push Messiah. anything away from the possibility of Jesus. So he will do a series of programs. He will come off sounding sometimes more sweetly than others. And he'll, he'll make it sound like, you know, the problem is you don't know Hebrew. The problem is you don't know how to study your Bible. The problem is your ignorance. Mm -hmm. Um, but he plays games. Okay, so... He, he plays games like we're going to talk about on YouTube where he ignores that 50 can't possibly refer to. He ignores the fact that the plural first person is used. All we like sheep have gone astray. Well, Isaiah's including himself by using we. Okay. So I was on a bus traveling because I didn't used to fly with a yeshiva student. Mm-hmm. And he gave me the typical singer-like response. Isaiah 53 refers to the righteous remnant within Israel that will suffer in order to atone for Israel so that Israel can be redeemed. But here's the problem. If Isaiah is including himself, we, then are you telling me that the prophet Isaiah was an idolater and an unrighteous Jew? Or 
are you telling me that it can't possibly refer to the righteous remnant of Israel? I can see the problem. I can, I can see how this could be easily like where people try to twist as much as they possibly can. These Jewish people try to twist it in order to not fit the Messiah when it clearly does it. It's like when I talk to a Mormon about these things, or I talk to him about Ephesians four eight about how that <clears throat> by grace we've been saved through by faith is not by works, and you know, and they'll argue until the cows come home that. Oh no, what about faith without works is dead and, and I have to earn it and I have to work my butt off and I have to, you know, show it's like these this is like the typical thing that happens with with Judaism now, along with Mormonism, along with even Jehovah's Witnesses and whatnot. It's a twisting of scripture in But it's also thing. ignoring historic interpretation. Uh, yeah, Rabbi exactly. Singer and, and that's why I entitled it Why Rabbi Singer Thinks the Sages of Israel are Stupid. Because what he is ignoring is that the interpretation of Isaiah 53 being Messiah is a very ancient interpretation. So when the Bible was translated from Hebrew to Aramaic, which happened after the Babylonian captivity, you would have the Hebrew text read, and then you'd have the Aramaic text read. This started in Nehemiah with Ezra. When they came back, their Hebrew wasn't so good. And so what you had was the Hebrew text would be read, and then you'd have a translation, much like you have a church service with people who speak Swahili. So you might read the English text and then have somebody, you know, translate that for the audience. And so you have these translations called the Targums or the Targumim. Now what's fascinating is they were used in the synagogues in Jesus' day. Isaiah 53 literally says, My servant Messiah. So when this was read in the synagogues in Jesus's day, the idea that Isaiah 53 referred to Messiah was not a foreign idea. Mm -hmm. But Rabbi Singer ignores clear Jewish sages that state very clearly that Isaiah 53 refers to Messiah. So I guess the question that pops in my mind is what are they so afraid of? I mean, because if someone is so easily manipulating something either and or is conveying the wrong message, the only two conclusions I can think of rationally would be either they don't understand what they're talking about whatsoever, that in sheer ignorance of it, or they know exactly what's going on and they either hate the person or they're fearful. One of those knows natures that they just don't want it to come out. And then when I wrote when I've talked to people about that, it really broke down to if I'm wrong, you know, I've screwed everything up. I'm going to hell or something bad's going to happen to me. But I want it to remain where it's in my way because then it makes it easier. And, I, you know, it, everything's clicking. For, I'm more comfortable. So do you think he is ignorant of the scripture and verse? Or do you think he is maybe scared or, you know, terrified that Jesus really is who he claimed to well, be and he doesn't want him to be that way? He views himself as the protector of monotheism and Judaism. Uh, okay. And so, you know, much, you know, so if if he's wrong, uh, what is he protecting and how is he protecting it? Good point. Because usually, like, if he thinks he's defending monotheism, I think it would probably be an issue with the, with the Trinity. Which is another big issue for Jewish people. But, but again, even Jewish scholars are coming out and admitting that Second Temple Judaism 
And I keep bringing this up. When you meet a Jewish friend and they say, well, I follow Judaism, say which one. Hit them with the which one question. So there's multiple sectors of Judaism. Well, Judaism has changed. Your Jewish person thinks he has a straight line from Torah to now. He doesn't. He's going through the rabbis, whether he likes it or not. Okay. Kind of, kind of like a Catholicism or even modern-day Christianity where too many Christians and Catholics don't read their Bible. They just go through a priest or a pastor or a bishop or whatever it is. And so Jewish people aren't operating out of a Second Temple Judaism, which, by the way, there were several versions of. There wasn't Judaism in the Second Temple period. There were Judaisms. So what is the Second Temple period? The Second Temple period is... You know, the, te- the temple gets destroyed, it gets rebuilt. And oh, so right. Those, those, that whole period of time, <laughs> Judaism is developing. They come back from the Babylonian captivity and things are a little different. And you have the beginning of the synagogues that started in Babylon. Well, when they come back, they continue to set up synagogues. You have the rise of the rabbis. Right. You know, and so Judaism really changes. And so when a Jewish person says they follow Judaism, that's really great. But what they need to know is they're not following Judaism. They're following some version or or descendant of rabbinical Judaism. They so, aren't following Torah Judaism. So what would, is there any, I guess it's, um, what would be Torah Judaism then? Well, first of all, there's no sacrificial system. There isn't. No, Jewish people don't do goats and chicken. I mean, the Orthodox will swing a chicken around over their head. Big deal. Okay, you know, uh, those are the ultra Orthodox. I mean, you know, my dad didn't go buy a dead chicken and swing around. You know, none right. of that stuff. Um, there's no temple. There's no blood atonement. Uh, Rabbi Singer has a terrible time where he's doing polemics against the sacrificial system. Well, he's doing polemics against Torah. Okay, there's no sacrificial system. There's no Levites. I'm not bringing my first fruits to Jerusalem this year. Wouldn't that go against Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, though? Sure. Sure, because in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, you had a bunch of guys go whores. By the way, the Talmud even records some guys saying, now there's a breach between the Jewish people and God because the temple is destroyed. What shall we do? And so they got together and they had a committee meeting. Uh, 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 Yohanan ben Zakkai who, to my mind, is one of the great authors of rabbinical Judaism. And he says, no, no, there's some verses here we can use to get around this. Compromise. And so he sets up rabbinical Judaism, essentially. He doesn't do it alone, but he starts the idea. And then there's this idea of an oral law that starts to develop as the rabbis gain authority. So really... To me, it comes down to you've got two choices. You have the rabbis of Judaism or some sort of weird offshoot that's been liberalized. Uh, or you have Rabbi Jesus, who just happens to be the Messiah and much more than a man. God come in the flesh. And you get a choice, okay? So wait, they actually have a Rabbi Jesus who would be... No, no, no. I do. Okay. Because if you're a Christian, Jesus was many things, but he did teach... And he did claim authority, and well, he did say, I say to you. Uh, and so this is why what Hillel says is nice, and if he's right, it's good. And if he's wrong, too bad for Hillel. He loses. <laughs> Feel the same way about the Rambam and the Ranban and, and Rashi. 
you know, you have these layers of tradition that the rabbis created that, that pretty much end during the Middle Ages. You know, you start to get, okay, this is our corpus, our body of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you have layers of, of Talmud, the Gomorrah and the Mishnah. But, but the bottom line is your Jewish person is running off of assumptions that have been given to him. So why, just out of curiosity here, why on earth is then, um, say, a regular Jew won't just pick up a Bible like and look into it? It's no differently than when I talked to my, when my wife was Roman Catholic. And it was very much... You know, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to trust what the uh, priest says. Why why don't Jews have, like, an intellectual curiosity, like, intellectual honesty just to pick up these books and just look for them themselves? They don't have to convert, but just well, some to do. look at them. Some do. And the Orthodox do read the Bible. But remember, it's not just what you read. It's the glasses you're wearing. Ah, uh, the way you see it. The way you see it. And so in the Orthodox community, you see it according to the sages of Israel who have the wisdom passed down to them. Now, in all fairness, understand that tradition is one of the things that have kept a dispersed people alive in every nation of the world for roughly 2,000 years. That's why I'm not against every Jewish tradition. I, I follow many of them because identity, it's a tool God allowed. The problem is when your tradition gets in the way of truth, you need to change your tradition. You don't change the truth. That is true. I mean, that when when God called for tradition, he said, let's do a remembrance of this, not as something to put above that and to change in order to make it so it better suits yourself. And, and you know, you talk to Mormons and stuff. What do you have? You have a secondary authority. You do. And you have the Book of Mormon and, and it's and I've done episodes on this and whatnot. And I'll go a little into this now because we're talking about it where I've looked into the evidence of the Book of Mormon to see, you know, what authority does it have? Because it's claiming to have the most accurate book of any book ever written. And so I looked for, oh, okay, if it's claiming this, is it anywhere accurate? And archaeologically, even genealogy-wise, um, just those two alone, I can say it's not whatsoever. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at uh, Talmud, uh-huh. um and someone tells me, you know, that it's the Bible plus tradition, I, I just, I gasp. That's the same thing Catholics say, though. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you, I've even heard some Protestants say that, too. It's it's the Bible plus traditions, and they're on the same plane. I go, no, that's never how it was. And I usually try to say, look, the Bible condemns that idea and says that tradition is meant to remind you of this, but the authoritative word of God is above tradition at all times, and they almost have a heart attack. Like, how could you say that? And they're so wrapped up and offended by it. I remember I used to live with a couple of Jews, and they were nice people and whatnot, but I brought this up to them. I swear they're going to kick me out of the house I was living in because, you know, oh, my gosh, you said that tradition was not this, you know, oh, my goodness, tradition is, you know, right up with the Torah and the, and the Tanakh and, and, and all this. I'm like, where does it say that? And I challenged them. I just said, out of care. I'm like, I'm not trying to be a jerk one. I'm just like, where does it say that? And even when I said that, you thought I, they, the way they acted was as though I had uttered a disgusting swear word under their roof. How dare you challenge this? And I'm like, I'm, well, really fast. I want to ask you that. Why is it that when I challenge, when you challenge certain Jews, 
about the traditions and the Torah and say, well, where does it say this in the Torah and the Tanakh? Or, you know, defend your position, please. Not to be a jerk, but to actually understand it. Why do they get so frustrated, so offended, like you uttered a disgusting swear word under their roof? Well, there's identity issues involved here. You're talking about an ethno-people group with a 3,000-year history. Okay. Okay. Um, with a strong sense of identity, which, by the way, I think God gave. If you go to Numbers, Balaam says, here's a nation that will be uh, people that will not be reckoned among the nations. They were designed to be separate. And so now you're striking at the foundations in their mind of their separateness. I have, an, I have, a, I have a secular dad who I don't think he's decided whether there's a God, but he'll celebrate Passover. Passover is good. It's what we <coughs> Jews do. Okay. And that's what you'll get from a Jewish person. So when you're saying this, it's, it's like saying to a guy, you can't be a guy anymore. It's, 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 it's that deep of an identity issue. So their identity is found in these traditions, but that's also a scary prospect because if your identity is found in an object or tradition or whatnot, then it's easily destroyed because, you know, those things can pass away. Those things can change over time. Ultimately, they fade away. And that's why I think when we, as Christians, we put our faith and trust into Jesus Christ, our identity is what God says who we are. That's our identity. But, but it's a terrifying uh, proposition to put your identity in a tradition. Well, see, what I think needs to happen here is that their Jewish identity needs to be a messianic identity. That's true. Okay, so rather than trading, because that's what they think you're asking them to do, trade their Jewish identity for a Christian identity. Okay, so they think that that's what we're doing. Right. Uh, no, we're asking you to connect yourself to the very telios, the very end, the very goal that your identity was to serve. Because Jesus was the embodiment of Jesus it. Jesus was the embodiment. So what I'm doing by believing in Messiah is I'm connecting myself to the ultimate exemplar, the ultimate Israel, the one who was to represent Israel perfectly. Because the fulfillment of the law was within him. Right. So he is the living Torah. He is the ultimate rabbi. He is the embodiment of what Jewishness was meant to be. And that's why, like, would you say that would also connect into Isaiah 53 that shows that Jesus... That's would... exactly what's going on, and that's what Singer ignores, is the reason it switches from corporate Israel to the servant is because the servant is the embodiment of corporate Israel. He is the king, and the king represents his people. By the way, that's throughout your Bible. Right. There's this sense of corporate identity that the ancients understood that Westerners don't quite get. And so if King Saul sins, the whole nation gets punished. And you say, well, that's not fair. Yes, because in God's mind, the king was the representative of the people. He was the head of the house. That makes a lot of sense. So if he does something, it's everyone is hit by it versus if not someone smaller gets hit by it so that's why jesus as king he is the perfect embodiment of the law and of the prophets and therefore everything is fulfilled what the law could not do weakened by the sinful flesh romans the son accomplished 
And so the idea here is the reason Isaiah 53, Rabbi Singer, you don't get this, changes from Israel to the servant is because the servant is the one who is the embodiment of the remnant at the end of 40. Okay, I see where you're going on. That's where Isaiah, that's the thinking Yeshaya, because he likes to use the Hebrew, makes him sound more. Yeshaya uses. And so what he's doing is he's taking these features in 40, he's pulling out of the narrative, He's ignoring the immediate grammar in the immediate context. And he's saying, you poor Christians don't understand. And the point is, he's not understanding Jewish thinking. Which is, when you talk, say it that way, it sounds like it's clear manipulation. It's not arrogance of what's happening. It's just a clear manipulation. Oh, no, he's not just talking to Jews. I did a segment because he attacked a pastor who used Psalm 2, Kiss the Son. Oh, no, he, he is perfectly willing to pull Gentiles out of Christianity. Oh, wow. No, he is a real, and he is also arming Muslims. He is a disaster. So it's, again, I think it goes down to he's willingly doing this. He would, so do you think he understands? Like, if he was listening right now, do you think he understands what Isaiah 53 is actually teaching? And he's willfully turning people and saying it doesn't mean well, that. Well, I have a better answer. My answer is if he doesn't, he should. As a rabbi, he should know what Maimonides said about Isaiah 53. Because Rob, Rob, Maimonides was a major scholar. If he's a rabbi, he should know what the Targanim say about Isaiah 53 before he gets on the air and starts talking about stuff. He should do his homework. I don't mind a Jewish person who disagrees with me. I mind a Jewish person who's being intellectually dishonest. Right. He's being dishonest because before you go on and you do a broadcast... Look, if my Logos Bible software can contain the Taganim, and he's a rabbi, he certainly has access to some Jewish universities or something. Why in the universe can't he look at an English translation of the Taganim? They exist. Why not do your homework before you, you blabberwocky? So I'm guessing that the reason he doesn't want to do that is because, as you said, intellectual dishonesty, which again points to... He is willingly and knowingly doing this, as in he is. He doesn't want the answer to be something. He's scared. He doesn't want to say this is the alternative opinion, but here's why I disagree with it, and then make a case. That's why he's scared of the alternative because he doesn't have a case to support it. That's why he's doing what he's doing. He's well, he also would be exposing to people what he doesn't want them to know. Right, which is why he has a clear. It's not. That's where I was coming from. Was was this in the mere arrogant uh, ignorance of not knowing what he was talking about? But clearly, as we're talking about this, it shows that this guy knows about what he knows Isaiah, where to find out. Yeah, he well, he undoubtedly knows exactly what it actually means, and the mere fact that he doesn't have ability to defend it, he doesn't just say as you were saying. If he just came out and said, I have a disagreement with that, you're fine with it, you can have a conversation about it, you guys can, you know, probably still have a disagreement at the end of the day, but at least you got your word or out. Or you could do what a Shmuley Boteic, who is a Jewish rabbi who also does polemics and has debated Michael Brown, does. You could say, I disagree with you, but I at least respect, okay, and be respectful mm -hmm. and be a gentleman. Shmuley, I, I sort of respect. I disagree. He wrote a book called The... Uh, uh, the kosher Jesus. I disagree with the book, but at least he's he's um, 
He's respectful. He says, okay, I disagree, uh, but I'm going to deal honestly with the other person's position. Which is intellectual honesty. Which is intellectual honesty. Um, because at the end of the day, Shmuley realizes that that intellectual dishonesty ultimately backfires because ultimately someone will do the research. Someone will get the YouTube up there. I want this to go out because I want a lot of people to have the info. Someone will do the YouTube. Someone will debate him. And someone will point out that Maimonides says that Isaiah 53 refers to Messiah. Somebody's going to do the homework who's intellectually honest and willing to do it someday. And you're going to look foolish unless enough of your fan base doesn't care what the truth is. Okay? Unless you're preaching to the convinced. Well, wouldn't this be more like a cultic belief type system where people just follow what he says without question? He falsely preaches. A, uh, well, he teaches. 600 people following him that I wish would be willing to at least interact. Um, the problem is, is that Jewish people, his arguments support or deal with their fear of identity. And I'll admit it. It is hard to keep your Jewish identity in the church okay it really is difficult and there are messy in the congregations but some of them are just messy mm -hmm. you know um the the ones that i've seen are most sound and i have some great guys out there are ones that don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say we're going to throw out two thousand years of jewish uh christian exegesis because these guys didn't drink chicken soup i think that's illegitimate you don't throw out truth because of where it comes from no, I agree with that. You know, if Origen says something that's true, it's true whether Origen said it or not. Right. And so you, you've got to say, look, the Gentiles did get a 2,000-year head start because our people said no. And then, you know, God worked. And the church hasn't been nice. I did a thing on replacement theology. We'll talk about that with the Holocaust. But, but the church hasn't always been very welcoming to Jewish people maintaining a level of Jewishness now. Hillside has been great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they said, okay, you personally choose not to do pork. You're not forcing it on us. And I'll be the first one to say, enjoy your pulled pork sandwich. Just, you know, give me the chicken option. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, we can eat different things and still love each other in Jesus, and we don't have to make a big deal over it. Well, that's also what Paul talks about in um, Corinthians, I believe, or, or in Romans. And Romans 14. Yeah. You know, he talks about if somebody just doesn't want to have that, then don't push it on them. But if you want to eat, go and eat a pork sandwich, then by all means, go have a pork sandwich. I've been in line at church's potlucks, and I'll say, hey, look. And someone will turn to me and they'll say, can, you know, can I enjoy my pork chop? And I'll say, hey, look, you can enjoy your awesome freedom in Jesus to eat that pork chop, and I can enjoy my awesome freedom in Jesus not to. And we can fellowship together because we've got freedom in Messiah. Exactly. And so we can enjoy our freedom and I will let you enjoy it your way and you let me enjoy it my way and we'll both have a great time together. Pretty much. So basically we covered the Isaiah 53 part of this. And um, so I think the next episode we're going to do is go ahead and cover about how the church is. All right, guys, until next time, may God richly bless you, my dearly beloved.